Welcome to Season 3, Episode 3 of the Coaching Badges Podcast, brought to you with the support of our good friends at Playerstat Data. Joining me on the show tonight, my co-host Mark Anderson. I've no idea what mood he's in, lads, so this could be an interesting news section. As usual, we have some thoughts about the news from the recent weeks gone by. Later on, former Irish Olympic boxer Kenneth Egan joins us as our special guest, and we have some great recommendations in the war chest. We hope you enjoy the show. So, Mark, to kick things off, what do you got for us from the world of sport this week? Um, I suppose sport really goes back into insignificance when you look what's going on in the world. The absolutely horrendous, terrible scenes in Ukraine. Stuff I don't think anybody really ever thought we'd ever see again. And and, and I don't want to be bringing the tone of a, a podcast that we try to be all positive about. But I just, you know, it's just, you just can't get my head around how people and how human beings, I think as a society, we're on our way to wiping ourselves out. If not, we're blowing ourselves up with nuclear weapons, but then either destroying the planet. But one thing that's really, really from a sporting point of view and from what we talk about a lot is... Um, whether that invasion of Ukraine could actually push the Western sports and uh, to reconsider all their relationships and the amount of money that's invested in clubs by people who haven't got a clue who runs their clubs. Perfectly <laughs> um, explained this week would be Chelsea um, and the mess that they're in. Like, I mean, it's even funny tweets about like, oh, they have to get a coach five or six hours. Obviously, they haven't tripled the Finn Arfson, don't they? Um, but, you know, it's just every... I'm, I'm flying over to Scotland tomorrow to see Celtic. Um, I haven't been in a couple of years due to all the reasons that I can't wait. My brother, my dad, um, my son, like four generations of, of fans. And we give out about people that own our club. But I cannot understand how a football fans can stand on the terrace and shout Roman Abramovich his name, um, considering all that's going on in the world. And the opposition fans, Newcastle, have Saudi Arabian flags in their audience when there was 81 people um, executed the day before. Like, are fans so fickle and do they not really give a shit that they're willing to forgive all this just to have success on the pitch? Because to me, and I suppose it goes back to the League of Ireland and some some clubs do it so much better connecting with the community. Your football club should be a representation of what you're about and your values and what you look for, whether it be the style of play, whether they stand for, what your parents or your grandparents or your friends got you into this club for. And if we haven't got that as an identity, why do you even bother turning up? And it goes back to the Super League. And I just think football has lost its soul. It's the Champions League and the money that goes into it and the gap gets bigger and bigger and bigger between those and those that haven't got it. Um, and you just you just wonder where we're going to end up. Um, I actually hope an awful lot of these clubs, the money's taken out and maybe we get some kind of a levelling of what should be the sport, what it should be all about. But like, there's, there's people have no idea, really. I actually spoke to a Chelsea fan, actually a good friend of mine, and I said, what are you going? What do you think? Because oh, we're fucked now as a club. I mean, we're going to have no money. And I said, but you not think it's an opportunity to start again? And I said, I, I see there's a Saudi media company. Oh well, that's grand. They're not. They're not linked to the uh, to the Saudi um, family or the. And I said, but they actually are. Do you not really care who owns your club? And like, listen to the entitlement. Of, and I'm, it's Chelsea fans this time, but I'm sure it could be the same for Man City, Newcastle. Any of the other clubs that are around, um, listen to them saying, oh, how dare they pick an us and they're only picking us because we're Chelsea and oh, Mr. Abramovich has done so much great for the world. I just think fans are so much a part of this problem. The demand for success, everything that goes with it. That I think football has lost its soul. And I think um, I was listening to um, some really, really good reporting that Miguel Delaney did. And I just, you know what I mean? This is, this is we're, at, we're, at a, we're at a crossroads in sport, not just in football, 
um, about where things go after this. So that's been the big thing that's on my head. And it's actually got me thinking an awful lot about where sport goes and grassroots football and the rush to get kids to in the UK. And it's, it's money-driven and it's success-driven and where are we going to go as a society with sport. So that's it. Not a great topic this week, but very relative and one I think that needs a massive amount of thought and exploration and some kind of governance over what goes on. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's a brilliant topic. Where do we begin? That's, that's the episode of the, uh, the the title of the episode. Anyway, football has lost its soul. <laughs> I like that. So it only took us three seasons to realise yeah. that. Just to go back over that, some unbelievable. So I'm glad you mentioned Ukraine. And I know it's a football pod and a coaching pod, but it would re- be remiss of us not to mention it. Jesus Christ almighty, I agree with you. I thought we wouldn't see the likes of that again. It's just mm. horrendous. And the fact that now that, you know, not only are you seeing it from the mainstream news channels, but, you know, the way social media is now, you're you're getting live streams from yeah. inside the war. Like that's, I can't get my head around that. You know, people in their houses bunkered down, you know, filming out the windows. And that is just horrendous. What and does again, someone look, say it's the, it's the first war that we've had on TikTok? Oh, yeah, it's it's mental. It's mental. And I, I do struggle to get my head around that. And you're right. I think it, it's no harm. I think that you also mentioned, you know, the stuff about money and football and the fact that it has lost its soul. That whole thing about identity. I only talked to somebody about it during the week. And to be fair to them, I really think the GAI do it better than most. You know, yeah, clubs have an identity. They link into their community. People regard themselves as club people. You know, the volunteers, the players, the staff, right the way from young ages, right the way through until they they die, basically, they have their club. And um, I think that's gone from football a long time. And um, maybe it's better lower down the leagues. I, I think you're right. Some clubs do it better than others uh, in terms of, you know, tapping into that spirit of membership or community. But mm. at the at the end, we're talking about here around the kind of Chelsea or the Super League type clubs. I don't think the fans care where the money comes from or if they if they are they ignorant enough not to realize it or are they just stupid enough to ignore it that they really don't care you know who's behind the dollars because all all they want i think i think you're i think you're you're spot on there i think if you go back to their comment about the gaa you like you pay for your parish it's your that that's it it's you pay for you mean a small little town in the middle of anywhere wicklow or down the countryside or wherever it may be can actually go on and do really well just because they probably have six brothers or six six girls that play in the Camogie team that happen to be absolutely superb and they can base their team around it. You know what I mean? And they can go on and have that fantastic journey, but it's you play for your parish. If you, if, I mean, if you look at Newcastle, a supposedly big club, I'd have question marks about that myself, but that's another conversation. But if you look at Newcastle, their fans are so hungry for success because they've, they've never had it. Um, and they're on the periphery. They've got a huge fan base, a big stadium, uh, fanatical support by all accounts. So hungry for success. Does that average person stand on the terrace? Does he really give a shit or she give a shit where that money's come? If it means they win an FA Cup final, get into Europe, do well, or who knows in a couple of years' time. No, that's, league, that's I don't a good think point. Listen, and I, they, and I, think they, that's, it's, I think fans have an awful lot to play in this, and I just think they accept it. Um, and, and all these fans that go on about, like, I mean, Chelsea played Newcastle tonight, and it was just abuse between the two sets of fans over their owners, and Chelsea going bust and... And the fact that, I mean, that's that's not what football, the working class game, was set up to do. It's like, yeah. I mean, it's totally, it's become a plaything for billionaires, oligarchs and, and actually countries. Yeah, it is. It is absolutely insane. I, I don't know where it's going to end. Is it a thing that you do try and like an NFL type structure where you have caps on budgets, you have drafts amongst players. So, you know, there's better movement amongst the teams and you try and help teams survive and compete. I'm not sure. 
I, I think we could nearly have a whole episode on that, just trying to work out what would be the best way to to keep the integrity of the game and to continue to for it to grow. Because at the end of the day, it is a great game. Like, it's know, a fantastic I, game. Yeah, and I, I'm delighted to hear you're getting over to Celtic with your family because I know how you know Celtic is important to you, just like you know the people's clubs are important to them for yeah. lots of different reasons. But it should be for those reasons that it is a place that brings families together and you know brings communities together, rather than a place that you go and it just becomes this. It's almost like a pissing contest about who has the most money and how abusive can we be to the other sets of supporters or clubs, you know, regardless yeah. of their. I, I'll be honest stuff. with you, and I, and I go against probably everybody else. I would welcome a super league. Yeah, yeah. Let yeah. them off. Let that top. 20 clubs around go off and play and, and there'll be a more levelling and probably a better more appreciation of what the game is my mate one of my mates in work is a Morecambe fan and you know what it took me about six months to understand but he has a fantastic relationship with us yeah and feels yeah. just as much as a Man United Celtic Chelsea fan um, and watches a game on dodgy streams whenever he can <laughs> and goes and goes with his mates and has a beer before it and, and you know what I mean and that's that to me is football that's, that's, that's great to football. hear my son is off um, after the Bowes UCD game today um, and off the Celtic with me tomorrow, but is also like he's got into League of Ireland in a big way. Great. Uh, because he can relate to Bowes and what they do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And you know what I mean? So, so, you know what I mean? That's where I see some hope. Yeah. No, listen, I, I met a guy during the week, a guy called, an American guy called John Peebles, uh, interesting character, living in Scotland, and he's taken Hibs to heart. And and he now yeah. supports Hibs passionately and uh, knows all about the club. And because he said, Yeah, look, the soul has gone out of bigger football and he, it doesn't interest him. So, uh, yeah, look, there, I know there's plenty of decent people out there following their clubs. And long may that continue. And certainly from going to Live League of Ireland over the last number of weeks, there's some great football out there. And so not only the football, just some great experiences to be had, you know, bumping mm-hmm. into old mates, having chats, catching up with people. I think it's really good. But on the bigger picture, what you talked about there in terms of the money at the higher end of the game. I don't think we've seen the end of it. In fact, I think we've probably only seen the start of it as people dip their toe into, as you said, this, it's almost like the the playground for the rich and famous now. You know, it's it's the, the latest accessory to have is either football club or a Formula One franchise, something like that, where yeah, there's, there's vulgar money. And don't get me wrong, I follow Formula One. I know it's back this weekend. But when you see the behind the scenes stuff that goes on there, the money involved in that game is just, it's insane. So... Anyway, look, we could talk all day about it. That's really good, Mark. Thanks for that, mate. Appreciate it. Good. Nice one. Moving on to the guest slot. Every episode, we tried to bring people on to offer a different perspective on the world of coaching or sport, just in an effort to increase our own knowledge and development. We're delighted to be joined tonight by former Irish Olympian Kenneth Egan to talk about lots of things, including his own stellar career and what it means to become a high-performing athlete. Kenneth won a silver medal in the Beijing Olympics in 2008, but there's so much more to his personal story. He's gone on to become a politician and a psychotherapist, amongst other things, but he'll tell you more about that himself. So welcome to the pod, Kenneth. It's brilliant to have you on. So before we get into some questions, uh, you might just give our listeners an overview in your own words of, of your own career to date. God, um, so I'm Kenny Egan, Olympic silver medalist. That's probably been the, the most noted achievement of my boxing career, uh, winning a silver medal in Beijing in 2008, long time ago. But before that, obviously, you know, winning 15 Irish titles on the lead up to the Beijing was, was a massive achievement. I'm the only Irish athlete who has ever won 10 consecutive Irish titles uh, in any sport in this country. 
Wow. So it's five years now. So that's a little nugget. So yeah, so just involved in sport over 25 years. Uh, lucky enough to be part of what I thought was the most amazing juncture in Irish sport with the high performance. Uh, to be part of that and to see the, the, the improvement of the boxers and the coaches as a whole to turn what we thought Irish boxing was stuck in the mud to one of the powerhouses in world boxing. To be part of that and to be to, to be allowed to enjoy and experience that uh, was something fantastic and and it's always going to be part of my my history you know being part of something that we thought would work a lot of people didn't think it would work but we stuck together as a team as a unit and went on to produce a, a silver and two bronze medals and then on from that then obviously going to London we produced another five or six medals so yeah so just involved still involved in boxing still doing a bit of coaching I'm a psychotherapist as well back to college after my retirement I found retirement very hard. I have to say, we'll talk about that in more detail, but uh, struggled with retirement, didn't have a plan B and kind of suffered a bit for that. But luckily enough now, I'm in a good place now. I'm working away and have good mental health, which is important, have a good family um, and have a great peace of mind. That's what's important to me. Brilliant. Jeez, that's that's fantastic. That's a fantastic summary. There's so much there, Kenneth, we're going to dig into it and I'm looking forward to it. But I'll just take you back. Uh, you just said yourself there, you know, one of the more notable highlights is... Uh, the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Uh, you had an incredible experience there, not only taking part, but like winning a silver medal at an Olympics. That's that's just amazing. You might just tell us a little bit more about, you know, how do you even go about preparing for an Olympic experience? Well, for people that don't know, you know, the, the, the Olympic Games in, in our sport in particular is, is the pinnacle. It's where all amateur boxers want to be. They want to stand on a, on a line with an Olympic tracksuit on them, you know. And But for me, it wasn't a straight... Simple A to B exercise, you know. I, I tried. I was became senior champion in two thousand and one. That was the start of my senior career. Two thousand and four came along the Athens Olympic Games, and I tried to qualify for Athens, and I failed. Uh, we got three attempts, went to three qualifying tournaments, and I bottled all three because, to be honest, I just didn't feel I was good enough. I didn't feel I was good enough to be part of that elusive group of Olympians. I had no self belief, you know, and and kind of fell short. Blamed myself, blamed everyone else. So I was at a crossroads in 2004. I was 22 years of age and I'm thinking, right, what do I do here? And that's a big question to ask because the, the question is here, do we commit four more years in my life to not know the outcome at the end of those four years? I didn't know I was going to qualify for Beijing. So it's four years is a long time to put everything on hold uh, and sacrifice all that you know just to con concentrate on the sport that you love, not knowing the outcome. And lucky enough, just at the end of 2003, 2004, like I mentioned, the high performance was, was set up where I seen people that, that really had an interest in the athlete, had an interest in the boxer and wanted to improve us as boxers. And we, we came together on a full-time basis, training in the National Stadium. We, we were down to Woody's and Bar, inflatable mattresses. We slept on the gym floor. We had no funding. I remember Gary Keegan coming in to start it. But first time I ever met him, he walked into the gym. We were all trained there in the weekend. That's all we did was train there in the weekends. But he came in and he drew an imaginary line with his foot across the, uh, the floor. I'm Gary Keegan. I'm about to start this high-performance program. You're going to train full-time. No messing about who's in. And we all were looking at each other, you know, full-time. Jeez, that sounds a bit hard to me, like. <laughs> no, because we weren't used to it. So yeah. we all across the line. I think it was 15 of us there that morning. We stepped across the line and within two or three months, that 15 dropped to five. Lads just didn't want to put in the work to get the yeah. you know, rewards. And the five that were left, myself, Andy Lee, Andy Murray, a few more, we got stuck into it. We, we got those mat the, the inflatable mattresses. We slept there and we trained there and we were learning and we brought Zara in from Russia, the coach, which was 
he changed my boxing career forever, you know. And uh, like I thought I was a an eight out of ten because I had a few senior titles and I had a four nations title and I, you know, cock of the walk. And when Zara came in, I asked him and he says, Can no, can you not a, an eight out of ten, you're a two out of ten. Jesus. Well, geez, that's exactly what I needed. Yeah. Gavin, you know what I mean? If I was kept told, oh yeah, Kenny, you're a great bloke, you're brilliant, and going out and getting beaten all the time, you know, people would be lying to me and I'd be lying to myself. So it was a hard truth that I needed. And that was the change in my career straight off the bat. I'm a two out of ten, make me an eight out of ten, I said to Zara. And that's when our relationship started, you know. And uh, he really he stripped us all back and, and really started from the ground up. Now, and I, only, I was only giving a talk yesterday to a couple of kids uh, about sport. And if Zara had come into my life when I was eight or nine years of age, what kind of boxer could I have been? I only started to le- really learn how to box. It's hard to say this, but really learn how to box when I was 22, 23. The, the science of boxing. Now, I'm not taking that away from the coaches we had in this country or anything like that, but it's just the levels that we had to reach, we needed something different. And so was that difference. He brought he brought a, a different dimension to, to, to the sport. And uh, he had all the connections in East, Eastern European countries, Ukraine, Russia. And we were going to France and Germany and we were getting our asses kicked. You know, they were very fit. Their conditioning was superb. We couldn't match them. We had a bit of talent, but we weren't great, you know, with the, the conditioning end of it. But we got better and we learned from the, the French and the Germans. And then we were getting so good, then we, we moved to the over to the motherland of Russia, you know, and why didn't want to go to Russia, to be honest with you, because I knew, you go to Russia, you're going to get your ass kicked, but at the end of the day, you're in a physical game, you're in a physical sport, Yeah. and we went to Russia, and we landed in that evening, we went into Moscow, I remember it was pitch black when we landed, we got a bus to the to the, to the hotel, well not even a hotel, we were looking at apartments, rough and ready, I went to bed that night, up the next morning at half six, there was only five of us on the team, five Irish boxers, two coaches and Gary, so that was it. We walked out, we have to, in Russia, you have to line up with a big straight line and face the coaches at half six every morning. The coaches will give you the spiel about what's, you know, the plan for the day. You nod your head and you go off then for a walk. 20 minute walk, then you go back for your breakfast. That's the first kind of light session. Then you train again at 11 and again at four. But when I was on the line, in the snow up to my knees, <laughs> right, five of us, and the coach <laughs> gave a spiel in Russian, and then Zor, you know, he, st- he stood there, broke it back to us. I stuck my head out of the line looked up to the right and there was about 80 senior Russian boxers there looking at us and I'm thinking my god <laughs> this is going to be a long two weeks and it was the longest two weeks of my life but it was a great gauge to show us where we were we nice. were in the Haveny place yeah. how could we dream how could we dream of Olympic medals and Olympic podium finishes and world medals if we can't match the best in the world you know how and far out from the Olympics was that Kenneth that was 2000 that was 2000 end of 2003 Okay. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 2004. Yeah, yeah. And then obviously I, I went to the qualifiers in, in, in for, for Athens and I failed the three times. And then, like I said, the crossroads. But the introduction was made to Russia and Ukraine and we were going there on a regular basis and we were getting really, really good because we could match these boys. We were staying with them. We were living with them, you know, in their yeah. world. And that, when you walk away from a training camp doing well against the top nations, they're saying to themselves, Jesus, oh, yeah, I am improving. And that was the start of it. Like I committed four more years. I really did want to get to those Beijing Olympics. But remember, Andy was the only one that qualified and for Athens, Andy Lee. And Billy Walsh had asked me to go to a training camp with Andy because he was on his own out in France two weeks before the Athens Games. And I didn't want to go. You know, I was full of resentment and the disgust and, and heartbroken that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to the Olympics. But uh, I decided to go anyway. And I went over with Billy and Andy. And we got the training in for the two weeks. I was training with Andy and the other, other boxers that were there, the French and the Germans. And on the last day, we were coming home. The camp was finished. And I was packing me little... Umbro bag, wherever it was, 
stitches missing and dirt on it and, and Andy Lee was packing his Olympic bag with the five rings on it and I says oh Jesus this is tough now and he was getting on a plane heading off to Athens and I was going back to Dublin and that was hard now that was disgusted with myself you know and that was a dark time you know I didn't really want to box anymore and I was, that was it I said I need to do something else here and, and uh, you know lucky enough though with the relationship that I built up and relationships are so important you know um, positive relationships the ones that I built up with Billy, Zor and Gary in particular and the belief that we had in the structure and in the programme, that something was something was clicking here, something was good, you know. Um, and I committed four more years then, obviously, and then obviously the four years running up to the Olympic Games, I was mastering my craft with Zara, and we were getting better and beating people that, you know, would have been 50-50. I was getting the better of them and really improving. And, you know, that's what you need to be in there. You need to prove to yourself that you're good enough. It's no point people telling you you're great. You have yeah. to go out there and perform. And that's what I was doing and getting more confident and, that was, that was the, the four years up to the Games and that was it then, you know, and to qualify, the monkey was off my back and that was it and going to those Olympic Games. I remember going out to, to out the hotel to collect me, me Olympic gear. I'll never forget it, going to that hotel room, my name on the bag, you know, with the five rings. Well, Jesus, it was powerful. There's, there's so much to pick out of that alone. Like, I mean, I, I wrote down about five or six things there that like, I'm, in, I'm, I'm really intrigued because I, I see it an awful lot in football um, and, I, and I don't mind saying this and I don't care who I am now you're upset where kids have been told that they're eight out of tens um, and then go across to places like the UK and are back within three or four years, crestfallen, no confidence yeah. um, and, and destroyed because coaches, and, I, and listen, I'm going to say whether it's out of fear of losing to another team or another club or whether they just don't know or whether they don't even know what, what is needed, are just building up these kids to, to something that they aren't. And then you go and you step up and you see actually what the level is. Um, and I, th- I just find that really... Mm. I find that really interesting that you, you've had that experience yourself. Um, the whole elite, the, the elite boxing and, and the whole Zorro coming in and everything else and, and everything that you spoke about, we've produced since that has started. What changed? What was it that changed? Was it just a mindset? Was it the coaches? Um, what, was the, what was the big things that changed that make us, that if you look at the, the catalogue now of top class boxers that we've produced across Olympics and every other sport? I think there's a number of things have changed and uh, like I said I was lucky enough to be part of the old system and when Zora walked in and Billy and Gary so I've experienced of both systems and the old system like I said we trained on the weekends in the, in the stadium went off for our clubs then during the week for di- to different clubs for sparring so there was you know you were always working with club coaches and then on the weekends whoever coach was on call would be in the gym in the stadium and that was it so you wouldn't have a proper experienced coach that would you, you would align to because there was no full-time available there for coaches. There was nothing there, no funding, no nothing. So when the high performance started, we had structure. We had one coach speaking on the floor, not 10 coaches with 10 different boxers. And Zora and Billy made that decision as well, by the way, at the very start of the high performance. No club coaches allowed into the gym. Now, I'll tell you what, there wasn't a lot of coaches. I'm very impressed with that now. Yeah. You know, the whole ego thing started to kick off. Well, hang on, I've been looking after this lad for the last 15 yeah. years. Yeah. But that's where it's that, uh, that caused havoc. But Gary said, no, we have Zor Anti in here now. He's, he's the head coach with Billy Walsh. This is going to be a new system now. No coaches allowed into the gym. We don't want any distractions. We want these lads to get the best coaching. And, uh, you know, that really ruffled a lot of feathers. But it had to be done. Closed doors. No one was allowed to sit there and watch the boxing. No one was allowed to sit there watching the training. Total distraction. So it was a closed shop and that was it. And we got to work in. I remember Gary actually, he made it, he'd done a great thing. And I only... We really realised that years later, we used to wear a green, white and orange tracksuit travelling for Ireland before the high performance. And when Gary came in, he got rid of the green, white and orange and he got his black tracksuits, just plain black. 
He says, right, we're starting from the scratch here, from, from the ground here. When you start to earn your colours, your stripes, we go back to green, white and orange. Excellent. You yeah. know, that was a nice touch, you know. Like, who were we? We needed to get an identity. Who were we? This high-performance team. We have to start pro- pro- producing. Start learning and producing. And then, then we'll give you back your Irish tracksuit. You know, so we went to Russia and or France and Germany with black tracksuits on us. Nothing else. And that was it. You know, thought that was a great move. Jeez. But, uh, that's amazing. Can I just ask, you mentioned there, because that's natural, I think, and you see that in lots of sports that there's, when there's any change, there's a little bit of initial resilience and pushback. So the club coaches naturally kind of felt out of the loop. Mm. Did it take long for the boxers themselves to get their head around, wow, this is totally different to what we're used to? Well, like I said, you know, when we started off with the high performance, there was 15 lads there, all senior, most of them senior champions, all mm. real good fighters. Well, Irish champions, let's say, right? When we started training full-time, twice a day, five days a week, going home for your weekend and straight back in, watching your diet, maintaining your weight, all that strict stuff that was going on, that, that 15 dropped to five. Lads probably, you know, they couldn't stick to full-time training, didn't like what they were being taught, and they went back to their club coaches. But then they probably never won a senior title after that. And I have to say, and I'm not just blowing my own trumpet, but when we started being the high performance, it was up to every other club in the country to try and beat a high-performance boxer on senior finals night. Now, that's nothing... Um, that, like, that wasn't means that the high performance was against everyone else. It's just, if you're part of this programme, you have a great chance of improving. So yeah. it's, it's in their interest to try and win a senior title to get brought into the high performance. That's what it's about. Raised the bar all so, the time. So it raised everybody. Exactly. It raised everyone, Mark. That was the idea. So yeah. if you want to be a high-performance athlete or a, or a senior champion, you have to be a high-performance athlete. So then that's what happened. Then they brought in the number ones and the twos, senior champions and senior finalists. So we had a big group of about 20 lads there when it really kicked off the high performance and people started to believe in it because we were getting better. The senior champions, like myself, I was winning a year in, year out. There was lads there with five, six uh, Irish titles under the belt. So we were definitely... You, can I ask you a question? Just just how did you get Zara? Why, or how did you identify a coach like Zara? Um, what, yeah, there was, a, there was a coach or there was a referee. I, I don't know his name, actually. A referee was over refing some competition in Georgia and he, he got to talk to Zara because Zara was the Georgian coach. Hmm. And we were saying we were looking for a, a, a coach to come over to, to Ireland. So he came over for a few interviews. Now, his English was very broken, very poor English. But what Zor had, which was fantastic, was he taught you true interpretation. So he'd, he'd actually stand on the floor and go through the motions with you. Physical. Yeah. Physical. So we could see what he was talking about. It's broken English, but he showed us through physical movements. And I thought that was fascinating because, you know, you get coaches that would tell you to do something. But he could actually show you what, what it meant. Then you go into it. Why you do what you do? Why you faint a certain way or why you, you step to this angle? You know, he would break it down and say, Jesus, that's a good one. I'll use that. I'll use this, you know. That's I wouldn't he, say there was many PowerPoints. No, that's what I'm saying. It was all physical. It was all physical education with him, you know. It was brilliant. So he showed us through his his his, his way of, of teaching was to show us physically. And uh, I thought that was fascinating, you know. But that is fascinating. I'm always amazed to understand how coaches get their message across it's made me think, um, Kenneth, you mentioned there that you've trained, you know, maybe twice a day, five days a week. So, like, what, what did a high-performance training week look like in terms of what was in the week? So, obviously, the physical end of it was very demanding. But, again, it was, you know, you had to be on the line. There was a line, right, a, a tape, a tape line on the end of the gym floor, black tape. You had to be standing on that line just before 11 o'clock with your hands wrapped. If you're not there at 11 o'clock, you sit out the session. Well. Right, doesn't matter where you're from in the country. Now, I was lucky enough, I lived in Clondalkin. I jumped, I, now in fairness, at the start of the high performance, I was busting, I was getting two buses with a suitcase 
that got me to the gym and it leave me the case there till the Friday and then got two buses home. But I was always early. I always I was very, very, very good time management and I still have. But uh, the lads swanning in, they'll be coming from Mayo or wherever, Belfast. If they come in at five past 11, they sit out the session. There was no acting the maggot, you know. Uh, hands wrapped. Then they brought in, you know, you had to be fully hydrated. So they brought in the hydration tests and all this type of stuff. So they were getting really strict with all that type of stuff as well, you know. But uh, you'd start off your first session on a Tuesday morning would be a running session. So you get out to, out to Sun Drive Park there. We had a track there. Yeah. We do our session there for an hour. Obviously, it'd be shadow. Now, what's all brought in was before every session, you do the fundamentals, shadow boxing, different movements, different attacks, 15, 20 minutes. Now, when he started that, when he came in, it was like a workout before we even started the workout. <laughs> <laughs> we were saying, for Jesus' sake, what is this? Well, I'm mad, you know. But he, he loved boxing. He loved it. You could see it when he was showing us the, 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 the attacks or whatever. And, you know, and then another one, and it actually, we've been going so much, or we've going so long, the billion have to tap on the shoulder. Right, so that's enough of that. Now. Come on, we do the running session. <laughs> but, uh, and then we do our running session. So then we come back to the gym then, have a shower. We'd have our, our lunch there. There was a, a chef and all there, a bit of lunch in the ringside. And then we'd, we'd get onto the beds then and have a, a, an hour or two's kip. Always sipping, always hydrated. They told us, we don't want to see a water bottle in your hand. And then the second session would be, Boxing session orientated, so it could be bags or in the ring, school combat or whatever. But again, Zor would get carried away. He'd end up doing 15 rounds when it should be only 10 rounds. <laughs> but he had so much knowledge in his head, and he'd probably seen the standard that we were at. He was thinking, Jesus, I have to do overtime. <laughs> but, uh, and then, so every second morning, so I'd be running, then it'd be weights, then it'd be running, and then it'd probably be a circuit on the on the, on the Friday morning. Nice. And every evening, though, we'd boxing orientated, so it could be bags, pads, or sparring, or or school combat in the ring, all ring work in the in the in the evenings, and that wow. was it. Um, you were but, knackered after the first like, couple of weeks. Like I'm not joking with you. Like I thought I was going to die, you know, <laughs> with the sessions. But the czar, the, the tempo that czar set, you know, even in the bags and the pad sessions, you're lying up in the bed and you're after having your lunch and you're in the bed. And you're thinking, "Jeez, I'm too. I can't even sleep here." And you're back at it again. But that was the start of it, until you kind of adapted to the kind of training regime. Yeah, but started to switch on a bit, you know. But then after that, then it was it was a pleasure. Jeez, we were flying. We were jumping out of our skin. Like I said, we were matching all these French and Germans and staying, staying to keeping the tempo. And we discovered an interesting fact, actually. And Zor, fair play to him. Like, when we done the video analysis, we were recording the Russians when they fought and when they sparred. And they would do something within every two to three seconds, whether it be a tacker or a feint or something, every two to three seconds. So you can imagine, so something happening all the time. Yeah, yeah. When they looked at us, we were doing something maybe seven to eight seconds. Like, that's shocking. Like, that's a lifetime in boxing. When you're fighting <laughs> four two-minute rounds, six, seven seconds, and you're still floating about doing nothing. So to bring that down to every two to three seconds, something happening, attack, another attack, another attack. That's where we needed And that was our condition, you see. We had to bring it up to, to match that for the two minutes. You can't just float about for a minute and then obviously box for a minute and around. It's, you have to be the same tempo every second of every round right through the fight. And that's when our whole conditioning changed. And then we started to operate like the Russians. Jesus. It's fascinating. I, I, I knew nothing about boxing before I came into this chat. And now I know I know even less. <laughs> you, know? you think of it. Seven seconds is a long time. You oh, yeah. Whereas you're standing there looking at someone for seven seconds doing nothing. That's a shame on you. You shouldn't yeah. be. That's wrong. You know. That, that's just, it, it's I, fascinating. I, I find it really interesting. Like, I mean, that mindset. Like, I mean, when we talk about the amount of kids playing football, as an example, that. Um, aren't operating at an elite level and never will but the, but the percentage that are good enough to go and do that like we don't have anything anything at all 
you know, I mean, at that intensity that I've seen till you get to kind of maybe something like League of Ireland and then that's very, very hit and miss depending on where you're in and the resources. And I mean, the big thing for me in all of this is, I mean, I, I was laughing when you were talking about black tracksuits, which is a coach, uh, a very good friend of ours, Mick Brown, who um, gets really upset when he ke- sees kids and anything except playing black boots. Even some of the kids that are overplaying um, in young academies and doing an amazing job, he'll comment on social media, go, what's with the white boots? Where's your black boots? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I mean, so I mean, that resonates. I think everything should be just all black all the time. Like, yeah. why show yourself off unless you've got the ability to back it up? Of but, course, yeah. Like, Mick, Mick Brown is someone, Gavin, and there's lots of other people, like my, my, our very good friends, Paul O'Reilly and William Terrell, who I've coached with over the last, oh, God knows, years, and it made me look older than I am. Um, but one thing is that they were all really, really good people. And I, I really, really think when it comes to coaches, whether it's at a high performance or, or an elite or whether it's a community, good coaches are good people. You mentioned Zora and some of the other people. Can you can you give me kind of a couple of people or some of the things that make stand out as a good coach to you or what it is that if you were putting your kids into an environment like that, what you'd look for as a coach? Well, I'll tell you, I'm just going to rewind back 30 years, right? Like my first coach, Noel Humpson, when I boxed for Nailstown, I started there when I was eight years of age. I was brought in by my eldest brother, Willie, who boxed for the same club. And uh, I went over with Willie. We all tried it in my family. Now, five boys in my house. We all tried it. Um, but when I went over and it was a school hall in Nailstown, you had to hang the bags up and set up the ring and then take it all back down two hours later to leave it for the school hall the next day, the school classroom. But Noel, his name was Noel Humpson. And he used to collect us every, 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 well, Monday, Wednesday, Friday and a Sunday morning. You'd hear the beep outside the door. He used to, and he drove from Augustown to Clendalkin to collect us and then bring us to Nailstown. Now, he was in his, back then, I'd imagine he was in his 40s or whatever, you know, but he didn't have to do that. He could have just told us to go and see us at the club, but he collected yeah. me and my brother. He collected my brother long before I even started boxing, but he continued the trend, collected me four days a week, brought me back to the house, and he didn't know if I was going to be any good or not. He didn't know that I had talent. You know, we brought him to the club, like my brother Willie, and that was the start of it. And I wasn't very good, to be honest with you, when I started. There was more people in the club that had more talent. And even on the high performers, there was lads with more talent on their little finger than I had in my whole body. But they didn't have the other parts that, that you need to excel to the highest level. The discipline, the dedication, the timekeeping, the hydration, all the other stuff that comes with it. Talent only gets you so far. But Noel was a great man. And he passed away when I was 16. Uh, and I struggled with that. That was devastating for me because he was my, like my father figure who brought me to the gym, who instilled in me that I, I, I had talent, that I was very good, that I could do something special, you know? Now, half the time, I wouldn't believe him. But he was there all the time, just dropping those little nuggets, telling me that I was brilliant and that it was good and you have a great right hook and your footwork is fantastic. And he brought me down to Drimna. His brother-in-law was Austin Carew, uh, Michael's father. And they had great conversations. But you remember every Sunday morning, bring me down to Drimna and we get a bit of sparring in and he tapped me on the back. That was brilliant. Excellent, excellent. Then he went, just vanished. And I struggled very, very hard with that because I had no other coach then. And, uh, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. So not only as a coach, when we're talking about coaching, it's, it's that people person as well to instill that kind of sense of belonging. Yeah. And that's important, you know, when you're involved in sport. It's not just ticking boxes, right, let's go into the gym there, hit the bags, skipping, sparring right out the door, see you next week. That's not what it's about. It's about feeling welcome, feeling that you're part of something. And that's where I felt part of a great club in Nailstown because of him. Uh, and he was a he was a great influence on me in the early years, you know. Jeez, that's that's fantastic. I'm so pleased to hear you talking about somebody like Noel Humston so well because they're they're out there. There's loads of them in clubs all over the country, in sports all over the country, helping young people. 
Um, and it ties in nicely, Kenneth, with what I'd like to talk to you about now. You've often spoken about the challenges for young people's mental health um, in this day and age, you know, especially around social media usage. So, you know, what do you think? You've mentioned some very good things there, but what do you feel that we as coaches can do better these days, you know, to help young people? Like, I think there's a good friend of mine, Igor, his name is, and he's, he trains in, in town in a club, boxing club, and he's, he's Ukrainian and uh, he's here a long time. But I spoke about him about this. He says, you know, the interest that kids have now in sport and the lack of it. And he says, Ken, he says, when I was in Ukraine, when I was seven or eight years of age, we'd be all in the club looking at our coaches when they're about to speak. We were like dogs waiting for instruction. Yeah. Mad to soak up the info because the, the coach was, was God. He was the gospel. And all the folks would be waiting for the instructions. Now we said, when I'm giving instructions, kids are looking up at the ceiling and hitting the bag or trying to mess with our phone or, you know, drinking a bottle of Coke. But, so you look, you ask yourself the question then, so what does a coach do in that situation? You know, like if a, a young lad comes in and he hasn't got the, all the talent in the world, but he's willing to get stuck in, you give him the time. You have to give them all the time. And hopefully they might change their ways, you know, and, and find an interest. But look, sport is one thing, but minding kids it, when they're in that vulnerable environment, getting them off the streets for the two hours or whatever it is, that's, that's just as good. If you can mould them and guide them through those tricky years and they come out the other end of a half decent, well, then that's your, that's your job done. It's not ju- every job's or every coach's job to get an Olympian. You know? No. Yeah. Far from it. Yeah. Like that's, and you understand Zara and Billy, are at the, at the, I suppose, at the time, they were at the top of the, of, of the scale in relation to bringing the boxers on that extra little bit. You know? But the boxers coming into high performance were quite good. So the volunteers, as you mentioned, that were opening the gym doors sweeping the floors, making the tea, the biscuits, all that type of stuff. They're the people that we need in in sport in Ireland. Yeah. The volunteers that are guiding these young lads, keeping away from the drugs, the carnage that's outside for that two hours. And I know that it's only two hours and they go back to their home environment where it might be the, the best in the world. But if they still have that little bit there, that can play a massive part. And it is about those father figures or mother figures that can help these young lads just to stay on the straight and narrow for as long as possible, just to get them through those tricky years. And that's what clubs are about. That's what sport is about. You know, it's not about Olympics or it's podiums or anything like that. It's about minding these. I know you had that myself. Thank God I had that connection with sport. I had good parents, but I had a great coach in Noel Humpson. But again, from 8 to 16, you know, the tricky enough years, but then he left me at 16 and I had to kind of navigate my way until I found a kind of a structure in the with the boxing and the high performance and stuff, which was a fair bit away. So I was kind of on, on, in neutral for a couple of years, you know? Well, that's fantastic. And I, I, got, I wish kids and parents could hear this because, and hopefully they will, but it is that so many of us get caught up in just the elite side of it, the medals and the podiums and all that. There's thousands of kids every week. I, I'm looking out my window here down to a field where there's hundreds of kids playing football. None of them are probably going to be professionals, but they deserve their our care and support and knowledge and respect. And because you mentioned earlier, and you're so right, it's all about relationships. I mean, how, how you make people feel. So no, that's that's absolutely brilliant. But, stuff. But on that, like, it doesn't matter how good they become. You know, like if a child, like you hear kids, oh, yeah, I'm going to play for Liverpool. Fair play, to you best of luck. And I hope, I hope, you know, I hope that that happens. But what you can what you can do in the meantime is is cushion him and 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 try and bring him on as best as he can. And maybe he'll make his own decision then when he gets that little bit older. You know what? I'm not that good actually. I'm going to go off and do something else. But in that pocket that you have him from from those from ten to sixteen or whatever it is, those tricky years where a lot of shit happens, 
you get him through that then, he's a better head on his shoulders to say, you know what, I'm not going to make as a footballer, I'm going to get an apprenticeship or I'm going to do something else. Yeah, that's yeah. you. You've done your job. You've saved I him think from that's, what I, the carnage. I think that's really, really important. I think I, I think more and more coaches need to define what success looks for them um, and need to be realistic about setting these ridiculous goals mm. that they sometimes think um, when they've got a group of eight-year-olds that half them can't tie their laces and everything else and they're talking about formations and this and everything else. Just like your job is to nurture the talent and get them to be the best that they can be at whatever level they end up at. Yeah. Um, and it's the same, like, I mean, I, 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 interesting earlier on when you were saying about about yourself and your own experiences, like, I'm, we, we spoke about this, I think it was in season one with someone else. I, I'm amazed at the amount of elite athletes or people in sport who due to injury or due to coming to close to the end of their career have no plan B. And I, I sometimes think that is with coaches as well, that um, unless we win things or unless we do X, Y, and Z, I don't know why I even want to do this or why I'm even doing that. But I don't, I, I'm amazed at the people that don't have a plan B or even think that they should have a plan B when it comes to sport. Yeah, like Jesus, I'm the, I'm the perfect example of that because when I walked out, and again, I'm going back to Billy Walsh, I went into Billy, I was fight, going to fight my last senior championships. It was my 13th final. I got beaten by Joe in two previous, Joe Ward, and this is my third attempt. And I says, look, win, lose, or draw here, I'm, I'm calling it a day. And I went to Billy Walsh and I told him that. And Billy says, look, I says, Billy, I want to come in here as a coach. I said, I'd love to give back what I've learned over the last 15, 10 years, 15 years. Because Kenneth, that's a fantastic idea. We'd love to have you in. We haven't got any funding at the moment, but you want to come in as a volunteer. And like, I'm 30 years of age and like, I can't walk into the Bank of Ireland with you know, my medal and ask for a mortgage. Yeah. So I was saying, Billy, thanks, but no thanks. I says, I can't come in as a volunteer. Um, we've no funding, can I? I'm terrible, sorry, but we just can't. So that's the first time in my life I walked away from the sport that I'd loved. And I didn't have a plan B. And that was frightening. 30 years of age, okay, Olympic silver medalist, great, 10 times senior champion. But it had nothing. And it was going to be on the planet an awful lot long. Yeah. Not yeah. longer than when I retire, you know what I mean? The sport is very short. It's a short career, very fickle. And uh, that was it. So I walked away. I got beat with Joe and they wrapped it up then when I was 30 years of age. I said, right, geez, what do I do now? And that was frightening for me because I had nothing. And I was at a crossroad. Thank God, I was two years sober at the time. I gave up drinking it when I was 28. So I had a good base under me. So I could kind of clearly think what I wanted to do. And a good friend of mine, Eric Dunham, had done a, a diploma in addiction studies. And he recommended it. So I had an interest in addiction. And it kind of worked out well that the timing of it was just perfect because I got approached then by the then Minister for Children, Francis Fitzgerald, who was a TD in my area. Would he be interested in running the local elections? Now, I'm not political. I'm not. I don't claim to be. And uh, it was just at the time, I, the situation I was in, it was kind of a, a, an olive branch. Okay, I, I, can, I can try this. I don't know much about politics, but I do know my area. I know the people in my area. Um, and I'm sure I can get stuff done. And with that and the, and the studying, I married the two of them together and got the two of them up and running. And I won to see knocking on doors. Now, I was knocking on doors. We're talking about swallowing ego here. Like like I said, I'm not political. But I'm knocking on doors that I know the, the resident that lives in the door. And on a normal day, he'd say, how are you, Kenny? How's things? I'm walking up that garden path and I'm knocking on a door looking for a vote. And they're saying, get the fuck out of my garden. Excuse <laughs> my language. Yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, I'll be honest, but I, I wouldn't say I talked to many uh, from your political party in the same way as I have a relationship with you. But, but the situation I was in, you know, I, I had to do something, you know, yeah. I didn't want to go with the social welfare. So I said, right, I'm going to trans my arm here, I'm going to try and win a seat here, I'm going to work in my local area. And I, that's what I done. I went out and I won the seat, and I got sent to my studies, I got my diploma two years later, I went on then to do the degree, you know, so well, I had to take risks. If you, if you yeah. stand still, you're not going to get anywhere, you know. If you complain and moan and say, poor me, poor me, 
Are we still in my mom's front room? Just saying there's so many links there. We, we, we see young footballers and old footballers uh, alike who, you know, come to that decision of my career's over for whatever reason. They're not good enough or they're let go or they get too old or they're injured or whatever the hell it is. And as you said, in football terms, you're old in your mid-30s. In life terms, you're a baby. Please God, you have another 40 or 50 years ahead of you. So it is a very, very difficult thing to get people to get their head around. You know, it's almost like your identity has been you've been a boxer or a footballer. And all of a sudden you wake up one day in your early 30s and people have forgotten you. And that's hard. That's hard. And and to see how you've adapted to that is amazing because lots of people struggle with that. Even with that there, like, and I remember this vividly, you know what I mean? I went out to Abbottstown to talk to to talk to the, the potential Olympians for Rio. And they're all they're getting younger now, these champions that are qualifying, 18, 19, 20. And it's great to see them qualifying so young. But the question I asked them was, you know, what does retirement look like to you? And they're looking at me like of 10 heads. Like they're in their prime, not even in their prime. Going to getting ready for Olympic Games, and I'm talking about retirement. Yeah. But I never had anyone ask me that when I was in my prime. You know, there's no reason why all these athletes, and it's, it goes football as well, but boxing, you know, they're training full time. They can only train four hours a day. Why have they not got a dual career going on? Yeah. Online courses, there's any amount of them there. So when you walk away from your sport, whether it's through injury, deselection, wherever it is, whether you're Olympian or not Olympian, you can make that transition into the real world as easy as possible. Whereas a lot of these lads, who have nothing there, just thinking they're going to be Olympic champions, they're going to be millionaires. It's madness. And when they do retire, they're looking at themselves going, Jesus, it's yeah. too late now to do that. And then it's carnage. So um, that question needs to be asked to all young athletes. What does your retirement look like? It's a great, great way of phrasing it. Uh, I think it's, it's, probably one of, it's probably one of the things the GAA do better in sport than most others because it's strictly called amateur. Yeah. Um, uh, it's like you have a job, whatever that may be. And your career learns to side. And if you're very successful in your career, you can use that to elevate and move yourself along in your job or create another profile. But I suppose it also, I mean, I, I have a real, I, I have a theory and it's only a theory that maybe it's, maybe as coaches and as individuals, we're just so, it's just so afraid of failure or an end game that we don't discuss the, on the, the things in life that may kind of throw a spanner in the work. And I think that's where it's really important that you have a team around you. Now, boxing is an individual sport. You walk into the ring and you're on your own. But I know that you have people around you. And I know, can you talk to me about, a little bit about the importance of having good people or what kind of people that you look for if you were if you were starting off tomorrow, starting your boxing career, know what you know now, what kind of a team, what kind of people do you look for? Well, obviously, you know, you need people that are all singing off the same hymn sheet, you know. You need to have, like, a joint uh, idea of what success looks like and what is, is success, you know. And you all have the same aims. You all have the same, same kind of a, a vision. Um, and it, with that then you need to instill that into your athletes you know and make them and I know myself like when the high performance is set up the lads did make mistakes the coaches did make mistakes and they put their hands up because they were learning as well this was all new for everyone new for Gary new for Billy and obviously Zor had loads of experience as a coach but in this high performance unit he was new to it so there was mistakes made in various different training camps picked at the wrong dates and all this type of stuff but that was all learning you know and we learned together we failed together but we succeeded together but for me you know it is getting People pair you like and with with again with Billy and Zor, Billy was a great coach, but he was a great people person. He knew the personalities of all the boxers. So when we we're in the dressing room getting ready for a fight, he'd know what to be talking about and what would settle you and what would get you going, you know. Whereas Zor was the tactician. He'd sit down, we'd do the video analysis of our opponent, watch the video, right? This is what you need to do. Go on the pads then ten minutes before the fight, 
work on this shot for the first round, blah, 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 and that'd be it. And then Billy would just keep it nice and calm. Might tell an old joke or two for me now, work for me. And uh, and that was it. So you had that great balance of the two lads, you know. But that was just down to, to being around them for so much, for so long. You, know, you can't expect a coach to come in and be a fantastic coach to a, a load of strangers that you just know out and about. You know, it is about knowing the human being. It's knowing the person. What gets them going? What what triggers do, do you need to set them off? And what not to say, uh, to them, you know. So it is about getting that relationship going. It goes, but it does go back to the relationship. Uh, and good, good, strong trust. Trust is important as well. You need to trust the guidance of the people that are talking to you. What their, what their, what their intake. Where are they gathering this information from? Is it is it viable? Is it trustworthy? Uh, and and then believe what they're telling you is true. You know, that's just reading out of a sheet just to keep you happy. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, that's amazing advice. You might just tell me, right? So this this is the first time, Kenneth, I've ever talked to you one-on-one. But what, what is absolutely evident to me is that you're a very, you know, passionate man and very motivated man, despite all your, your troubles, ups and downs, goods and bads in the past. And it's great to just hear you talk with such passion about what you've been involved in. So could you tell us what do you feel, you know, continues to drive you you know, with lessons from your sporting career? And how do you maintain that hunger to just keep, you know, contributing to society and been better over time? So that's a good question. You know, like, I have a lot of different hats that I wear throughout my week. You know, like, like okay, I'm in the gym, I'm working with a few lads, teaching them how to box. In the evenings, then I run a few classes, keeping people fit. So the kind of levels of the of the tactics go down a little bit you know the, the 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 depth of the instruction goes down so there's another hat there then I'm in a therapy room there's another hat on there uh, and then I'm on in the council there's another hat on there then I'm going to give talks another hat on there but uh, I do I do have to crack with my little daughter she's six and I do tell her I have 10 jobs she says you have 10 jobs I says yeah I have 10 jobs running around the place but you know I just love like and it's not it's, look not it's nothing to do with money you know but I love helping people you know, and obviously with that comes comes the few bob to, that you, you everyone has to work that you earn. But I think that the most gratifying for me is if I got a text off a, a client that I was working with, and he just says thank you or you know I'm in a good place. That is that's special to me because I get the opportunity in my therapy practice to sit with somebody, total strangers most of the time, to sit with someone for an hour and actively listen. And as coaches, sometimes we don't do that. You know, we don't actively listen to what's going on to the person we're talking to because we're too caught up in what we need to say and we don't listen to what's coming back to us. And that's why, uh, the great old proverb, that's why we have two ears and one mouth. We should do more listening. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, when I get the chance to sit with somebody for the hour and actually actively listen and make eye contact, something we don't do anymore, mm-hmm. eye contact, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a taboo subject these days. Oh, he's there, what's wrong with him? <laughs> when you make eye contact and talk to someone and someone or someone's talking to you and you make eye contact, they feel listened to. And then that opens up a whole new world of conversation. Once someone feels that they're being listened to, anything can happen. And, uh, you know, there's a great saying as well, I don't know who said it, but when you're in a therapy room and things start to go off, you know, and there's connection made, it's like there's a third person in the room. You know, that's kind of way, when really good stuff starts to happen. It's It's a phenomenon, yeah. Ah, oh, that's fantastic. You didn't anyone see the film Mass on Sky there recently? No, I don't no, no, no. tell you it's well worth the watch. It's just yeah, about yeah. like that. Two couples, one couple's son has been killed, and the other couple's son has killed him. And oh, it's yeah. four people in a room talking. It's just you no, get drawn no. into it because yeah, like totally. that, they've so many things they want to say to each other and so many things that need to be heard from each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
it's about two hours or something, but you're just kind of sucked into listening to these four people talking. But not really good. But listen, Kenneth, that's that's been incredible. I, I tell you, I've learned so much listening to you and I've been inspired by listening to you. It's amazing. There's so many takeaways that we can now, you know, use with our own players and in our own social lives and our work lives. But um, you're, you're not getting away lightly just yet. We, we ask everybody that comes on uh, to finish their chat with us by naming their dream five-a-side football team. So it's your team. Anyone can make it. Don't have to be footballers. They can be boxers. They can be anything. Yeah. Yeah. Who, okay. who makes your dream five-a-side team? Well, and just, be, just before you pick it, like I'm very fond of you, Kenneth, and <laughs> I will be judging you on the makeup and positional sense of this team. So just walk away there now. No pressure. Right. Well, when we start, right, straight off the bat, and I hope the guy that Billy Watts listens to this podcast. Really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going in goal. <laughs> I'm in goal, right? Billy Walsh is a striker with Katie Taylor. Oh, wow. Well. Yeah. I'm and liking I'm, this. Yeah. Billy Walsh is a strike with Katie Taylor and I'll have Eric Cantona in there somewhere as well. Oh, nice. And nice. To top, one, it off, to top it off, we'll have a bit of David Beckham because he's really handsome. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought I'd hear those words from Kennedy. Yeah. <laughs> David Beckham because he's very handsome. Oh, <laughs> right leg as well. He's a good right boot. So give us that again. So we've got um, Kennedy in a goal. In goal. Yeah, the funny story when we're in the old high performance, we had a bit of a floor, floor space. We used to play a couple of three sides, four sides, and uh, I'd always be against Billy Walsh, and I'd always <laughs> on the back, the back line in the goal, you know. And every time I'd come out with the ball, Billy would shout at the top of his voice, "He's going to lose it! He's going to lose it!" And I'd panic, <laughs> and of course I'd lose it. So I go back into the goal, you know. But then so but is Billy, is Billy any good as a footballer? He was, he's a gam man. He's a doorboard. He'd show you in towards the mirrors and stuff. A very, very violent footballer, I have to say. Very violent. Um, he just survived in the League of Ireland in the 90s. Oh, I think that was animal, a requisite. Yeah, and and, and let's not forget, we're training there to try and stay injury free. <laughs> for a competition. And Billy's going in with the two legs into the kneecap. Oh, so, my God. Great, that's that's great. I hardened us up. I hardened yeah, us up. That's how Gap plays. <laughs> I, I made a career out of that. <laughs> so that's yeah. amazing. So uh, Kennedy going to goal. Yeah. Um, no defenders. I like that. So yeah. got, all, 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 all action. Katie all action. All attack. Uh, Cantona. Just give Cantona a free roll. He can do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Stick a midfield. Yeah. yeah. Handsome David Beckham in midfield, supplying Billy Walsh and Katie and Taylor. Katie Taylor. Beautiful. Uh, that's that's good side. Uh, I wouldn't get into a scrap with that side. <laughs> I think actually you're the first guest that's named themselves in the team. Oh, yeah, that right? yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, that's, no, that's, don't, don't feel don't feel intimidated by that. Ken. No, no, don't. That's superb. We we've had all kinds of teams over the series, but that's that's up there. That's I just I just have this vision of you. I don't know. There's a bit. There's a a, a movie a remake called Mean Machine, and Jason <laughs> Statham plays in, it and he's a goalkeeper. All right, we're playing against prison wardens, and every time the prison wardens go to attack, he just launches and punches the head off them. And I just think that vision of you as a goalkeeper. <laughs> oh God, yeah, yeah, very good. Listen, Kenneth, that's been just a, a fantastic way to spend some time of a of a Sunday morning. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed your company, and we really appreciate you helping us out. All that remains for myself and Mark to do is is again wish you well for your future. We we'll keep a close eye on what you're doing, and hopefully our paths will cross again. But uh, thanks again, and listen, um, stay safe, mate. Thanks, yeah, a million, lads. Yeah, thanks Mark, very much, lads. Yeah, Cheers, lads. Bye, bye. 
So moving on to the war chest every week, we try and bring you coaches, some things to check out uh, for your own self-development, uh, documentaries, books, and anything like that. Um, so Mark, what have you got for us on the war chest this week? It's back, Drive to Survive. And I know you've finished it already, which obviously means you've either got nothing else to do or your job is letting you have too much free time. Um, season four, again, when I watched this the first time I went, I don't even like Formula One and it's addictive. It is ridiculous what goes on in that sport. And it's got, I was actually even one of the guests that we had on our podcast, the Irish guy that worked with one of the teams. It was incredible to listen to. So yeah, Drive to Survive season four um, looks like a really, really good show. I've, I've watched enough of the trailers. I'm holding off till either I get COVID and I'm floored and I get to watch it all in one go or whatever happens for it. Look forward to that and I don't want any spoilers, but I reckon this one will be just amazing given how tense and that finish to the season was. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, another one I have for you is, and again, friend of the show, Mr. Warchest, Philip Connolly. Uh, I, I just, I listen, either he's putting up these things and not even reading them or else he just doesn't speak. <laughs> but um, he tweet, he's doing one of his, I think it's his way for you to lead badge, which is a great achievement. Um, and he put up this guy called Damien Rodden, who's director of formers of um, RSC and Elect. And his book is on the syllabus for that course. And it's called Fit for Every Game. Uh, so a really, really good book. Looks really, really interesting. Someone that um, I will look to get onto the podcast and see if he wants to talk about that whole area there. We touched on it before, but I think there's a huge element that I think our, our, some of our listeners will get something out of. Yeah, so that's two for me this week because I know you've got one as well. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to give any spoilers away on Drive to Survive, but it is so worth watching. And, and Netflix give it the, as uh, David Hughes would call it, give it the full gun. They really, really dramatized this. And there was so much to dramatize in, in last season, particularly the final race. So, yeah, just go and watch it. It's amazing. Two, I agree with you on your tweet that you put out, though. I'd love to see them do it on League of Ireland. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be good crack, no fairness. Netflix have to do it. They have enough money. They could just draw yeah. a few bob at the League of Ireland. It would be great crack. <laughs> so I'd love to see that. But, uh, yeah, the book, um, a big, big shout out to two people, Adrian Harvey, a former guest of the show. I think he was on uh, last episode in season one. Sound guy, 80, kept in touch with him over the years. Um, but he sent over a book. He sent over two, in fairness, and I, I know I have to meet you to get you your copy. But it is called Stronger Together, uh, How Great Teams Work. It's by uh, Simon Hartley. Uh, AD reckons AD chatted with him recently said he's a top guy and um, we've we've extended an invite to the pod so we'd love to get him on at some point uh, the forward is done by the great Serene McGeekin so I've, I've started reading it it looks it's really good and I like it um, funny that I mentioned Damien News a second ago he gives a little bit of a write up on it saying he can't recommend this book enough so it's it's yeah it's another one I think that's going to become part of the, the staple diet uh, and the war chest for ourselves going forward so that's uh, Stronger Together by Simon Hartley and once again big shout out to AD Harvey for getting that across the water to us so yeah, really good stuff, mate. Lots of uh, lots of good things there to check out. Listen, just as well, you're too nice to say it. If anybody wants to send us any free stuff for us to review, I'm always happy to take on free stuff. I have very few principles and morals left. <laughs> well done. It had to be said. Season three, episode three, Mark's begging for free stuff. I love it. <laughs> Although I, yeah. I do believe we have some... Uh, Oh, we have uh, inspired, inspired by the slagging of the head in the game, lads, Dean Arrow and Co. That we have uh, coaching badges merch on the way. We do. We should have it in the next week or two. We have some hoodies and some body warmers and polo shorts. 
Oh, um, no. It's a very small limited, as in two or three t- of each. Uh, and me and you will test them out for us. And then you never know if there's, an, if there's a demand. You know, if anybody wants our name across their chest, oh, <laughs> I think it, I think the whole pod's gone to your head, mate. You and you and Mick Brown, you're starting to demand you, too, uh, too much money. I'm taking. T- I'm, I'm observing football from the sidelines these days, so I get a chance to rant now much, much more. <laughs> and after all you've just said about football losing its soul and the money coming into the game, and now you're going around flashing the merch. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to actually disrupt the game from if it in. So football has lost its soul and now officially the coaching back <laughs> has lost its soul. <laughs> and available as a t-shirt, football has lost its soul. 55 dollars. <laughs> oh, brilliant, mate. I love that. <laughs> That's it, folks. The end of season three, episode three. Hope you enjoyed it as much as myself and Mark did. Thanks, of course, to Mark for selling our soul out for some cheap merch. Although I'm looking forward to seeing it in fairness. Uh, a word of thanks, as ever, to our superb sponsors, PlayerStat Data. We really appreciate uh, the continued support of Colin and his team. A special word of thanks to our guest tonight, Kenneth Egan. A fascinating insight, literally inside the ropes of a high-performance environment. I look forward to following Kenneth's career as he continues along his path. We'll be back next month with some more chat and discussion. Until then, stay safe and remember, when it comes to coaching, there's no right or wrong way but there's always a better way.